Hello, and welcome back to the Department 12 podcast, where we talk about everything IO Psych. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina. When we left Courtney Keim in our last episode, she had just quit her first post-college job working in a residential treatment center for boys. So what's next for Courtney? After working in the residential treatment facility fell through, I said, now what do I do? I'm $30,000 in debt for my undergrad. I have a bachelor's degree. And I, I thought I was going to be a child psychologist. And clearly that's not the right path for me. Now what? And in the meantime, I didn't have a whole lot of luxury to sit around and think about this for very long because I had bills to pay. So I went back to waiting tables and bartending. And you may know if you've ever bartended before that that's a very coveted position. You generally don't just walk into a restaurant and get to be a bartender. I had to start back at the bottom at at a new restaurant and work my way up from server to eventually becoming a bartender. A typical day for me was very different from some of my coworkers because I am pretty high on that conscientiousness scale. When I came in, I wanted to set the bar up perfectly. I'm getting everything prepped, wiping things down, getting backups of everything. I'm setting myself up for success so that I have everything that I need and I don't have to stop in the middle of the shift and go get another bottle of bourbon that's locked up in the liquor cabinet or I don't run out of ice. It was a lot of organization a lot of planning, a lot of thinking ahead and anticipating future problems that might come up. Such an important part of being a bartender is establishing relationships with your regulars because those regular customers are the ones that you depend on to pay your bills. You want that to be a relationship that's not exploitative. You want it to be a relationship where they actually feel like they're your friend, like they're taking care of, that that you're not just there to take all of their money out of their wallet, but that you're really taking care of them. I see parallels with that in the world of being an IO psychologist and specifically in consulting. I, I think over time we develop these regulars, we develop partnerships with organizations where we do need data from them. We do need to get into their organization and get access to their employees, but you want that to be reciprocal, mutually beneficial, and that you can keep coming back to them time and time again. The restaurant business is a great industry for IO psychologists to examine because things rarely do run smoothly. When they do, when we're in that flow, it feels so great. Of course, anything that has to do with the kitchen can be a big, a big wrench in your system. The restaurant I was working at right after uh, I was working at that residential facility was a block away from the Orpheum Theater, where all of the plays were happening, the operas. So you have people that need to get to the show on time. And that really means that that getting the food out and the kitchen being on time is crucially important, that the food is cooked correctly. So if you have people who are sitting at your bar who are eating, who need to get out quickly, if the food is not coming out quickly, they might just cancel their order. Their bill isn't going to be as big as it was because they didn't order food. You're not going to get as big of a tip. They're going to be mad. Maybe they don't come back. So you don't want that to happen. So that would happen all the time. Unfortunately, here I am as a little IO psychologist. I I can vividly remember yelling at my managers and saying, look, here's the problem. You're hiring people to come back there and cook who have little to no training. They don't know what they're doing. You just you hire somebody off the street who has no training and then you throw them in the kitchen 
during a really busy shift and expect them to be able to get their mise en place ready, to be able to multitask, to be able to get 25 of the same dishes out the door at various times. It's a really difficult job to work in the kitchen. And I immediately saw it as a hiring issue. I saw it as like, you're not hiring the right people to begin with. I can remember being so frustrated with with my managers that they couldn't see that that was uh, the problem. And this particular restaurant that I worked at, we were having so much difficulty getting this food out and sales were down. So we actually had been bought by a brewery and they told, they changed the menu and they put a bunch of hamburgers on there and they took off a lot of really great dishes that our regular customers really liked. They closed the restaurant for two days and brought in these chefs from California to come and teach everybody this whole new menu. I sat down with one of the guys who came in from California and I said, this is not an issue with the food. It's not that the food is too hard to make. It's, it's goat cheese ravioli. Like it's ravioli is really not that difficult to make. You're just not hiring and training people in the right manner. And of course, nobody listened to me. They, they just thought that I was just a silly little girl, I suppose, who didn't know what she was talking about. That restaurant ended up closing. They didn't last uh, because a lot of those regular customers went away and they couldn't keep their sales up. I can vividly remember this as well. I was waiting tables and it was towards the end of the evening and a party of eight comes in and I said, sure, I'll I'll wait on that table. The gentleman who was at the head of the table was just one of those people who was, he was just an absolute jerk. He was just very belittling. He ordered a vodka martini with blue cheese stuffed olives and I said, I'm sorry, we don't have blue cheese stuffed olives. And he looked at me and he said, do you have olives? And I said, yes, sir, we do have olives. And he said, and do you have blue cheese crumbles somewhere in the kitchen? And I said, I think so, yes. And he said, then I'll have a martini with blue cheese stuffed olives. And it was just so dismissive. And he was treating me like I was an idiot. And I was so upset at the way that he was talking to me. And so I went back into the kitchen and I had the the person who worked in the salad uh, uh, line, give me blue cheese. And I went to the end of the bar and I sat at the end of the bar, like stuffing blue cheese crumbles into these olives very aggressively. The tears just started to pour down my face. And somebody came up and said, are you okay? And I just was like, I can't believe that I'm stuffing this blue cheese into olives and I have a college degree. I mean, I just was sobbing. I could barely get the words out. It was so embarrassing and demoralizing and humiliating. I couldn't even wait on the table anymore. I had to let somebody else take care of them because it was, I guess, as as they say, the straw that broke the camel's back. I went outside, there was an alley that was next to the restaurant and I went outside with another coworker and I don't smoke cigarettes, I never did, but I pretended to, I was like, give me a smoke. And I I put a cigarette and I just kind of held it there because I just didn't know what else to do. That was the turning point for me where I said, I just don't think I can do this anymore. It's a lot of fun and it's really good money working in the restaurant business, but there's just so much about it that it it doesn't make you feel great. And especially when you're working in places where we know now, of course, that there's just an incredible amount of sexual harassment that happens in restaurants, uh, especially towards women. Uh, the hours are terrible. There's generally no time off. 
no health benefits. At that point said, I've got to start doing something. I've got to get back into grad school. I've got to get out of here. I don't really know still what I want to do, but, but I've got to get out of the restaurant business. My mom went to nursing school later in her life. And while she was in nursing school, she was waiting tables as a way to support our family. She had been doing it off and on her whole life too. And I can remember when I was 19, I decided that I was going to work in a full serve restaurant. She said, I'm going to give you some tips, you know, and she warned me. She was like, you need to be careful. There's a lot of addiction. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of alcohol abuse. You got to be careful. You got to stay away from that. And she also said, you need to tip your bartender and you need to tip your busboy really well at the end of your shift because they're the ones that are going to make you your money. I followed my mom's advice and I actually met my husband working at a restaurant, he was a bartender and I tipped him out very well and took care of him. And we ended up dating while we were uh, working together at the restaurant. 20 years later, still happily married. After years of working in the restaurant business, Courtney was ready to move on, but she didn't know where to move on to. I, I was very lost and I reached out to my mentor from undergrad, one of my professors. And I said, can you please meet with me? And she graciously agreed and I went to her office, which was very odd when you're a few years removed from undergrad to go back to your psychology professor's office, but it I highly recommend it because it actually really changed my life. I went to her and she said, tell me what's going on. And I, I said, well, here's what's going on. And I spit out at her all of the things that were wrong with the restaurant that I was working at. I said, you know, and there's two sous chefs and how do you have two sous chefs? And I just, you know, so I, I was, diagnosing all of the problems with the organization. And, and, and again, maybe there were some tears that were falling there as well. And she looked at me and she said, you need to go to grad school. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you need to go to grad school. Ha really? Have you looked at IO psychology? But I'll be honest, every time that I saw the description of IO, it just it didn't hit home for me in the way that you might expect. Uh, I mean, even today, if you go to ONET and you look at the description of an IO psychologist, I'm like, oh gosh, it has to go to court and like testify. And, oh, that's not real. I just don't, none of that really sounds very interesting to me. So I was resistant to it at first, but what I did was I, I was tired of being in the restaurant business and I just started to eliminate all the other branches of psychology. So clinical was out, that wasn't gonna happen. I was not interested in cognitive psych. I wasn't interested in social psychology. Like I just could say, I don't want to be neuro. Um, and I had a few experiences when I was in undergrad that just helped solidify that those weren't the right fit for me. So IO was really just like all that was left over. And again, so I'm in Memphis and uh, the University of Memphis has a master's in general psychology program. Well, maybe I'll just go there. Maybe I'll just go and get a master's in general psychology. And I didn't get in. It's because I sent all of the application materials to the Department of Psychology, but I forgot to send the separate application that actually goes to the graduate school admissions office. Uh oh, I was absolutely devastated. I just couldn't believe it. And, and as you know, these graduate programs, it's a fall admissions process. So now I have an entire another year of waiting tables ahead of me. It was so demoralizing and so terrible. I actually went to work at a fine dining restaurant to try to make a little bit more money 
Um, and in the meantime, I said, I'm going to spend the next year trying to figure out what the right kind of program is for me. I applied to about 12 different IO grad programs. I, I think I had just decided that that was going to be, of all of the options, the best fit for me in psychology. As a first generation college student, I didn't have the luxury of really understanding the, the graduate application process. My husband and I were on our honeymoon. We'd just gotten married and I got a phone call and I didn't realize it was from the director of the IO program at one of the universities that I applied to. And he said, can you come in for an interview? And I said, I'm on my honeymoon. I, and I didn't even understand what an interview was. I knew that there was an opportunity there, but no one really prepared me for what I was going into. I kind of thought that maybe I was already in. I didn't know that this was yet another part of the process of, of deciding um, who to admit into that program. And I went in once I got back from my honeymoon and, and I went in to meet with the director of the program. I wanted to highlight my academic chops. I wanted to, you know, show him like, oh, I was valedictorian of my high school. I got really great grades when I was an undergrad once I decided on my psychology major. And that was what I wanted to focus on. And, and as he's looking at my resume, he says, oh, so I see here you were a bartender. And I, and I could probably just feel the color drop out of my face. Like the thing I was running from, the thing I was so embarrassed about was the thing that he brought up in this interview. And I, I just couldn't imagine that that would be relevant or why he would be bringing it up. And I said, yes, I've, I've bartended and waited tables for many years. And he said, I really like that. That's really good. And I, what? I'm sorry. It's good. And he said, you know, being an IO psychologist is kind of like being a bartender. You have to be able to talk to anyone at any time. And I said, what? OK. And at the time, I really didn't understand what he was talking about. But now looking back, I can say, oh, I get it. Now I see. Yes. When you are a bartender, you, whoever sits in, at your bar is who you're taking care of. Sometimes that can be a celebrity. Sometimes that can be an executive of, of an organization. And sometimes it's just, you know, average Joe who's coming in for a drink after work. And as an IO psychologist, I now recognize that you got to be able to walk into an organization and run a focus group with uh, literally I've run focus groups with the, the guys who uh, work for waste management, um, who pick up the trash and you have to be able to connect with them and talk with them in a way that makes them feel comfortable. And then you got to be able to walk into a CEO's office with this fancy suit and his, you know, big oak table and be able to shake his hand and talk to him in a way that makes him feel comfortable. Um, and again, those regulars finding those contacts and organizations and establishing those relationships and making sure that that's done in a mutually beneficial way. Luckily for me, the director of that IO program had had people who were bartenders who he brought into the program who were successful. So he saw it as a sign that I might also be successful. So the thing that I had been running away from was actually the thing that ultimately got me into that program. There were two of us that got accepted into the PhD program that year out of like 65 applicants and I was one of them. 
I know I have some listeners who are just considering a career in IO psychology. You're wondering if it's really for you. So I asked Courtney for some tips to know if you've really been an IO psychologist all along. For me, looking back, it was having that critical eye and trying to understand how business decisions were or were not addressing the real problem. So as a matter of fact, I kind of sometimes I, I think about IO psychology as being rather similar to clinical psychology in that there's kind of presenting problems that a client may give you, but then there's the underlying problems that you really have to get at. And I think if you are someone who has worked in a lot of jobs and you are just taking at face value what the company is saying and you're like, yep, this is the problem. And if we do this, it'll fix, you know, whatever those presenting problems are, you accept. And um, then that may not be the IO psychologist in you. The IO psychologist is going to be the one because we are inherently scientists. We're skeptical. We're critical. We want to see the evidence. We want to see the data. And we're really trying to get at what the underlying issue really is. Um, it's, it's not, the issue is not the high turnover. The issue is the culture of the organization. The, the fact that, that maybe people are not getting paid, uh, as much as they could, that there's understaffing at the organization, that the it, employees do not trust one another, that there's not camaraderie that's happening with the employees, that they're, they're throwing each other, uh, other under the bus. So, you're having all those counterproductive work behaviors and not all those organizational citizenship behaviors. I think if you're somebody who works in a company and you're constantly looking for the underlying real issue, if you're questioning the decisions that are being made by management and recognizing that those decisions are not addressing what the underlying problem is, I, I think that that's what makes you a little IO psychologist all along. A big thanks to my guest, Dr. Courtney Keim and to Lisa Kath for recommending her. And thanks to all of you for listening to the Department 12 podcast. Until next time.